Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is John Prudeau, the U.S. editor of The Economist newspaper. And it's hard for me to say The Economist newspaper because to us Americans, it looks and feels like a magazine. But after uh, many years of being a reader and consumer of their products, I know that they refer to it as a newspaper. Welcome, one and all. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be in such distinguished company. Ah, Thank you. We are recording on Thursday afternoon. The actual indictment has not dropped yet, but we think it is imminent. Trump um, received a letter saying that he is indeed the target from Jack Smith. And uh, according to a variety of different reports, the possible criminal statutes that he may have violated include two that we are familiar with because they were referred to by the January 6th committee. That would be Section 371 of Title 18 that makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. And the other, Section 1512, also of Title 18, that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. And so This looks like it is about to veer into the most serious crimes that Trump committed as president, namely his attempt to overthrow a legitimate election. There is also one more thing that this letter may have adverted, and that is Section 241, which makes it a crime to conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. The reason this is significant is that this title has been used to go after people who were attempting vote fraud or to prevent African Americans from exercising the franchise earlier in our history. So... Here we are on the verge of a situation in which the leading candidate for president of the United States could very well be on trial in multiple jurisdictions for multiple offenses, even as this plays out. John Prudeau, I'm going to start with you. I noticed that despite everything, despite absolutely everything, an Economist YouGov poll found quite recently that in a head-to-head matchup of Trump versus Biden, they were about tied. Which is wild. Which is completely insane. A couple of things to say about the political effects of a second federal indictment, which comes after the New York indictment. You know, these are piling up. And of course, you know, as a political analyst, the striking thing, of course, is how little any of this moves the polls and what an extraordinary thing that is. But you know, I think that's almost baked in at this point. Mm-hmm. When we get this federal indictment, I expect that would be the same, right? People, Americans have their minds made up already about Donald Trump. But so just take that as a given. But to step back a bit, this is completely 
extraordinary. Everybody on this podcast really covered the Trump administration in some form or other. And there's a risk of becoming sort of dulled to the extraordinary and, and a bit numb. But the accusations, the things that Donald Trump is going to be charged with are completely extraordinary here. And it's frustrating in some ways that one has to kind of underline that. But nevertheless, we do because voters, by and large, have formed their opinions already of Donald Trump. They're not going to shift them. I mean, when the indictment itself lands, what I've noticed from the past couple is that there's always a lot of detail in the document itself, which is fascinating. And so when it comes to our own coverage of it at The Economist, I think that's the stuff we'll really try and get into. Because even for people who followed these events very closely at the time, there's always detail in the indictment, something that Donald Trump said or something that he did, which we didn't know before, that adds to our, our understanding of it. You know, that is an excellent point. And it is also the case, I'm saying this just maybe partly as self-soothing because this is an extremely fraught moment in our history and it is very disturbing. But look, trials tend to rivet attention and they are inherently high drama. And things will come out in trials that will focus people's attention in a way that they have not been focused before. Linda Chavez, do you buy that? I absolutely do. I mean, it started with the O.J. Simpson trial, which was nationally televised. Now, this one is not likely to be televised. However, it will be heavily reported. There's so many recent cases where the trial turned public opinion. Now, it isn't public opinion that matters very much when you're under criminal indictment. It's the opinion of the jurors. But in terms of his political future, that public opinion does matter. And I just want to say something about these three different statutes and focus a little bit on that Section 241 of Title 18, which is the post-Civil War Reconstruction statute that was put into place in order to, to go after the Ku Klux Klan and others that were depriving newly enfranchised African Americans of their rights. And no one has suggested this, and I may be totally off base here. We haven't seen the indictment yet, so I could be wrong. But I'm just wondering whether or not Jack Smith is looking at the jurisdictions that Donald Trump tried to essentially throw the votes of voters out of. They were heavily Black and Latino. They were Maricopa County, Arizona. They were the city of Philadelphia. They were the city of Detroit, the city of Atlanta. And you sort of wonder if one of the cases that's going to be made is that Donald Trump and his co-conspirators, and I'm assuming there will be others named, were in fact trying to deprive certain voters, not all voters, but certain voters of the right to choose the candidate of their choice and that it was based on race. Damon Linker, I'm going to come to you next. But before we do, I'd like to do a little table setting by just reminding all of us that just, what, two and a half years ago, after the Trump second impeachment trial, where Mitch McConnell and most of the other Republican senators, not all, but most of them voted not to convict, Mitch McConnell gave an impassioned floor speech in which he said that acquitting him on impeachment was something he had to do because he was no longer in office, but he said he will be held accountable. So let's just hear a little part of what McConnell said then. Justice Story 
specifically reminded that while former officials were not eligible for impeachment or conviction, they were, and this is extremely important, still liable to be tried and punished in the ordinary tribunals of justice. Put another way, in the language of today, President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen, unless the statute of limitations is run, still liable for everything he did while he's in office. Didn't get away with anything yet, yet. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. Well, Damon, we haven't heard from Mitch McConnell lately. Certainly haven't heard him reiterate what he said there. But it is entirely possible that even people who are saying to pollsters that they do think these indictments are politically motivated, and you get these crazy results from polls, you know, 62% think that these indictments from Jack Smith are politically motivated, but about equal numbers think that Trump probably committed a crime, which is a little bit contradictory. But in any event, it is possible not everybody will rally around when the facts begin to come out. Well, it's possible that everything we've seen over the last few years will change and people will start <laughs> acting differently. But until I see evidence of it... Well, wait, let me push back, Damon. Let me push back. It's just to ask this. Look, even before any a trial evidence has come to the attention of the public, you already have about 25% of the Republican Party who believe that Trump should not be their candidate and that they are worried that he is unfit. So that's the starting base. It's not the whole Republican Party. No, but it is an overwhelming majority that either wants him or some equivalent to him. There's no equivalent. Uh, well, I agree with you on that. But then again, if you have, you know, 20 or so percent who wants DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy to be the, the nominee, that's roughly 75 percent of the party that is in the firmly in the right populist quadrant. And that means that the alternatives who are in the race don't have a lot of oxygen to go much higher than they already are unless we assume a more fundamental shift in people's orientation, which is what I'm a little bit skeptical about at this point. I have made the point on the podcast for quite a long time now. I know Bill has made his own version of this argument as well, that Trump is a primarily political problem for this country. And he is also a legal problem. Now, what we are in the midst of and what is going to continue to unfold, I think, on sort of two tracks over the coming months and through the election of 2024, is that you're going to see those two things overlapping, but also remaining somewhat distinct, that Trump can be indicted over and over again at both the federal and state level in multiple jurisdictions, be facing trials of potential conviction for his crimes, while at the very same time, the voters of the Republican Party choose him knowing everything to be their nominee for president. 
And now I do think that when it comes to public opinion and what Linda was talking about in parallel to the O.J. Simpson trial, I mean, all things being equal, I think his prospects in the general election are harmed by all of this. But the problem is that the sequence of events go such that if the voters of the Republican Party do not substantially change their views at the moment, which are elevating him to somewhere around 50%, he is going to win regardless of what is going on on the legal track. And once he's the nominee, even if he's in jail and running for president from a jail cell, it's pretty darn scary because there are only two people running uh, in our system other than the potential spoilers, people like Cornell West and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and others who may jump in, the no labels bid and so forth. So if he is the Republican nominee, no matter what is going on on the legal front, he could potentially win. We don't know what other events are going to interfere with the events leading up to the actual voting. And that prospect is truly horrifying for someone who cares about the soundness of American democratic self-government, because that opens up a real possible scenario where you could end up with Donald Trump sitting in a jail cell, winning the election, and having to be released in order to deliver his inaugural address and take up residence in the White House, which is enough to you know make me almost short circuit and just give up because it should be so inconceivable as to be laughed out of you know a screenwriting convention if you proposed it for a movie and yet here we are here we are <laughs> all we can do is sit slack jawed and watch this stuff unfold I just would urge listeners to keep the two-track thing in mind that, yes, it might feel satisfying that finally he's going to get his comeuppance, as Mitch McConnell said that he still could when he did the very much wrong thing in blocking a conviction in that second impeachment, even though he had already left office. He said, let the courts handle it. But the problem is the political track is still there. It's still live. And a large number of Republican voters just don't care. In fact, the fact that he's having these legal difficulties for them somehow verifies uh, his populist authenticity. It's bad. As Tom Nichols said on the Bulwark podcast this week, in light of his record, the only job in America that Trump has a reasonable chance to achieve is the presidency. He could not be appointed the you know CEO of a major corporation. He couldn't be uh, elected to the local school board in any town. He probably wouldn't be hired to run a Walmart, but he stands a frighteningly good chance of being legitimately reelected, which is just astounding. I'm going to come to you, Bill Galston. You have very good ties with leading Democrats. And you often hear it said, and I'd be curious your reaction to this, that the Democrats, that is Joe Biden and the Biden administration, want Trump to be the Republican nominee because they recognize President Biden's weaknesses and they feel that a Trump nomination is their guarantee of reelection. Can you evaluate that for us? <laughs> Where do I begin? 
I hope that's not what people are thinking, because it would be deeply irresponsible to root for the other party to nominate someone who is so manifestly unfit to serve again, or I would say ever, as president of the United States. It's deeply irresponsible, not only because it degrades the quality of democratic choices, but also because there's no guarantee that in a head-to-head contest that Joe Biden would win. It all depends on events that haven't yet occurred and circumstances that are almost impossible to predict, and in some cases even to foresee. I am cautious to the point of pessimism by nature. And that means that I tend to favor a form of decision-making called maxi-men by the game theorists, which means that you look for situations in which you can minimize how bad the worst outcome is. And it is deeply risky to deliberately promote an outcome that is very bad in order to enhance the chances that an outcome that is very good would occur. That's the sort of gamble that you can take when you're playing in Las Vegas. But when you're talking about the future of the country, you should want the country to be able to move forward, or at the very least, to be stable and held together, regardless of which candidate wins the election. And so from a political point of view, I think it's ill-advised. From a moral point of view, if that's what people are thinking in the White House or any place else, I just think that's wrong, almost wrong to the point of being unconscionable. If the Republicans were to nominate a traditional conservative, the sort of people that they nominated before Donald Trump ever came along, I wouldn't want to see that person beat Joe Biden, but I wouldn't be terrified about the future of the country if that person did beat Joe Biden. And I think the American people deserve a choice that the country can survive whatever they decide to do. And if Donald Trump is on the ballot, that minimum condition of political stability and security will not have been guaranteed. John Prudeau, so Speaker of the House McCarthy, when asked about this latest target letter from Jack Smith, said to reporters that, oh, well, you see, Trump was rising in the polls. And he said, so what do they do now? They weaponize government to go after their number one opponent. So Damon just said a few minutes ago something about a Trump or a Trump equivalent. And I said, there is no Trump equivalent. And one of the things that strikes me I spent decades in the Republican Party, and that party is as dead as dead can be. And one of the ways you know that is that there no independent voice is allowed. You have this cultish, you know, lockstep response to everything because people have been frightened or intimidated or learned to their sorrow that they cannot criticize Trump in any fashion without paying a big price, either a political price initially, or even a price in their own safety, their own personal security. And so I wonder how you evaluate that. I mean, you know, I'll just give you a couple of examples. His main rival for the nomination was not able to take advantage of this news. Ron DeSantis said, I will take it as one of my jobs as president will be to end the weaponization of these agencies. I'll get that job done. 
Senator Tim Scott said he would end the weaponization of the Department of Justice. There are a couple of people in the race who are willing to tell the truth, but they are a tiny, tiny fraction of a minority. So do you share my sense that Trump is a unique figure in American politics and a unique threat? Or do you think it's just that the party has become so corrupted? I think you're right. And Damon is right that Trump is unique. There's nobody like him. But part of his political evil genius has been to mainstream a whole set of ideas within the Republican Party and really set the terms in the Republican primary. And one of the things which is now conventional wisdom among any of the candidates who are remotely competitive is, as you say, that the DOJ has been weaponized by Democrats, that there's no such thing as impartial justice in America, and that Trump or another Republican needs to win next time around to either reverse that or use the DOJ as their own instrument to persecute their political enemies. And that's pretty scary. No, you know, even if Donald Trump were not the next Republican nominee, which is just overwhelmingly likely to be, the fact that an idea such as that has been mainstreamed is alarming. It's one of, you know, many ideas that he's managed to mainstream. We've got a piece in this week's Economist about how the view within the GOP at the moment, or at least within the field of front-running presidential candidates on the Republican side, that Mexico is now an enemy. You know, in the open rhetoric about sort of invading Mexico to deal with drug cartels, how that's been mainstreamed by Donald Trump and it has become a sort of accepted position within the Republican Party. So there are lots of examples of this. So I think Trump is unique, but I also think he's changed the Republican Party in a very profound way that's likely to last for a while. Just to come back at Damon, please don't throw your hands up and give up because I enjoy your writing very much. We're going to need you to kind of accompany us through the next little bit. I think your case scenario is unlikely. I mean, from all the analysis I've read, the chances of these cases against Donald Trump being completed you know, past the point of appeals to sentencing before the 24 election or before, you know, the next president's inaugurated in January 2025 seem really, really slim. I'd be interested if you guys disagree. And then last point, Mona, you raised the Kevin McCarthy case. And, and I was going to mention him after you raised Mitch McConnell. McCarthy was pretty critical of Trump after January the 6th, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really been, you know, amazing, not surprising to your point about how the GOP has changed, you know, the degree to which he's happy to make excuses for Donald Trump on January 6th now. Right. Well, that is a perfect segue to our next topic, which is what a second Trump term would possibly look like. The Economist has had a couple of excellent pieces, the New York Times as well, New Yorker, looking seriously at what the Trump people are planning. So we have to begin with Trump's view, of course, which he stated in a speech in 2019, here bearing in mind his extremely limited understanding of what the American Constitution even says. But he said, I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president. And again, quoting Trump regarding what his plans are for a second term, he said, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. And we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. 
So, Linda, I'm going to start with you. This isn't just Trump's fulminations and crazy explosions of rhetoric. There is now something called the America First Policy Institute, which is an actual think tank that consists mostly of Trump graduates who are planning for a second term. They've got the Heritage Foundation also busily at work on plans for a second term, some of which are incredibly frightening, such as leaving NATO, just for starters. Well, you're absolutely right about that. And I should probably, in full disclosure, mention that my organization, the Center for Equal Opportunity, did sign on to the Heritage Foundation's Project 25 to work on civil rights issues, as we have every time the Heritage Foundation has put together this kind of blueprint, which they first did for Ronald Reagan. And while there are troubling things, and certainly the NATO suggestion is absolutely off the wall, there are other things that I think standard conservatives would approve of. The problem is that during the Reagan years, there was an effort to rein in certain kinds of agencies, independent agencies. I used to head up one of those, the Civil Rights Commission. And it was the view in Republican circles and certainly in the Reagan administration that the president should have the power and authority to appoint and to fire members of independent commissions, that this sort of quasi-legislative executive agency, which we have a number of, where the president nominates, but Congress also can nominate members and where they serve for fixed terms and are not supposed to be removed, that that is not necessarily a great thing. Now, to go from there to what Heritage and some other organizations are doing, which is to promote the idea of what's called the unitary executive theory, which essentially hosts all sorts of powers, almost unlimited power, to control every aspect of the executive branch in the president, that's, I think, we ought to be cautious about. And there are some reasons why I believe the founders had an idea that we were going to have separation of powers and that there was going to be a way for one branch to check another branch if a particular branch sort of went off the deep end. And so this idea that Trump had, that Article 2 basically gives him the authority of a dictator was obviously wrong. And unfortunately, there are those in the conservative movement who are sort of more leaning in that direction now. And I think it really does have to do with their being part of the, the Trump cult, that this is not any longer an intellectual debate about whether, for example, the president of the United States has the right to fire certain heads of independent agencies or not, whether people who are appointed for terms can nonetheless be removed by the president. Those are things that I think are within the realm of reason. But basically giving the president all authority would upend the system that we've had for more than 200 years where there is a balance of power, where there is the separation of the various branches, and that separation is there in order to make sure no single branch acts in a kind of authoritarian way. 
John, if anything, conservative legal scholars have been making the case now for a number of years that executive agencies need to be more subject to congressional oversight and authority, not less. But there has not been an argument in the conservative world until now, which, and this is very different, suggesting that it should all vest in the president himself. And of course, as we know from Trump, you know, this is going to be all about policy and not about settling scores or punishing people he regards as insufficiently servile. Right. So there are a couple of parts to this. One is this phrase that we've heard a lot for the past few years, the deconstruction of the administrative state. And this is the idea among America Firsters that there are all these government agencies that are unconstitutional and they've taken power away from Congress and they need to be scrapped. And there's a you know, in some senses, reasonable constitutional argument about that. And then there's a version of that, which is basically, here's how Donald Trump you know, takes his revenge on the deep state. And then there's another part to all of this, this whole effort, which is the thing that I wrote about last week in The Economist, which is the preparations in personnel terms for a second Trump administration, which are well underway at places like AFPI, the America First Policy Institute, the think tank you mentioned, Mona, and also at Heritage. And, and at Heritage, they have this effort led by Paul Dans, who worked in the Trump administration, to vet about three, 4,000 people who could serve as political appointees in the next Trump administration to make sure that those people know the policy backwards, know how those agencies operate, know how to get things done. And anybody who has criticized Donald Trump over the past however many years would be pretty much automatically weeded out in that vetting process. And so what we saw in the first Trump administration, which of course was a lot of chaos, but then also a lot of people serving in that administration who were there to you know, serve their country and perhaps had some other sense of what their role in the constitution was, those people wouldn't be there next time around. That would partly be because it would be self-selecting. You know, If you're a Republican for whom January the 6th was a step too far, you're not going to want to serve. But also this effort that Heritage and others are spearheading to just make sure that there are enough political appointees who are signed up to an America first agenda and very supportive of Donald Trump from day one means that a second Trump administration, were it to happen, would be a fundamentally different thing to the first time around. And, you know, you couple that with the deconstruction of the administrative state stuff with Schedule F, you know, the effort to make it much, much easier to fire career civil servants and put the political appointees really in charge. And you have a recipe for something very different. Yes. And, and I'm going to come to you, uh, Bill Galston, add to that Trump's particularly corrosive way of undermining confidence in institutions. And so he, together with all of his acolytes in the Republican Party, are saying that the actions of the Department of Justice are completely political, and therefore we should view the Department of Justice simply as an arm of the party in power, not as a department that should maintain a certain distance and have its own standards about objectivity and being impartial. And so because Trump is able to pervert things that way, he will persuade a goodly number of people in this country that it would be fine for him to do turnabout once he has control of the Department of Justice again. I want to make just a few points because John has very ably covered most of what I was going to say. 
and I don't suffer from the famous Mo Udall disease of insisting on saying what's already been said. Not his disease, but his analysis of why debates in Congress take so long. The main point I want to make is that what we're seeing in Donald Trump's reported plans for his second term, in some respects, is a culmination of a current that has been running among conservatives and within the Republican Party for a very, very long time. If you go all the way back to the Nixon administration, the argument was pretty overt that the bureaucracy, aka the permanent government or what we've come to call the administrative state, is filled with people who either have their own interests to serve or who are ideologically opposed to conservatism in all of its works and ways. In the George W. Bush administration, one of the most prominent figures was John Yoo, who articulated within the administration a theory of the unitary executive that had been gathering force in conservative circles since the Reagan administration. And Add to that the fact that conservatives in law schools have long been arguing that what we've come to call the administrative state has no legitimate constitutional basis. I know some of these people. They're very intelligent. And in the abstract, they have a reasonable constitutional argument. But concretely, it's bonkers. It would mean, in effect, repealing 100 years or maybe even 120 years of of American history. And in the immediate circumstances, that is, of the possibility of someone whose commitment to democracy is shaky at best, accumulating all executive powers in his own hands, it is something to be feared deeply. The other point I want to make is that, to tie a bow on what others have already said, the second Trump administration would be much better organized and much more purposeful and much more unitary than the first one was, and therefore far more dangerous. Donald Trump himself admitted slash asserted at his speech to CPAC earlier this year that the first time around, he didn't know who the good people were and the bad people, the strong people and the weak people, the reliable people and the unreliable people, but now he does and aided and abetted by America First and the Heritage Foundation and others, he's right. He will. And he will be able to do to the executive branch an enlarged version of what he did for the judiciary. That is, make all appointments off a pre-approved list. And the sorts of internal fights that hobbled him in his first term, I believe, would be conspicuous by their scarcity in a second term. So in the immortal words of Ronald Reagan, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I guess my message would be, be afraid, be very afraid. And if you care about the future of the country, leave everything you have, whoever you are, whether your contribution is intellectual, political, or financial, leave it all on the court over the next 15 months. Play as hard as you can, because this is... All the chips are going to be out on the table. 
And this is a game for the highest stakes imagined. Oh, 100% agree with that. Um, (laughs) But since this is a pretty grim podcast, I will try to lighten the mood slightly because, Bill, you quoted Mo Udall. And there's a great story about Mo Udall. He was running for president in a primary. I can't remember which one. It might have been Wisconsin. But in any case, he was hoping to do better than he did. He went out to greet the reporters and he had to acknowledge his loss. And he said, well... The people have spoken. The bastards. <laughs> All right, Damon. Um, actually, apropos of that, perhaps. Now, let, let's consider something that the Trump people are not taking into account, which is that our government is very different from that of other comparable nations. So it isn't well understood, for example, that instead of having this huge bureaucracy that everybody always talks about, we actually have a hidden bureaucracy. They're not federal employees. I'm going to quote John DiUlio, who was a professor at University of Pennsylvania. Here's what he said. Our very big government is not simply a collection of public programs administered by an army of public employees. It is a vast and complex array of public and private institutions, for-profit and non-profit corporations, contractors, agents, and facilitators. An accurate measure of government's full scope is thus very difficult to come by. And he further notes that per capita government spending in the U.S. is higher than in France, Germany, or the United Kingdom, countries that are mostly derided as being more socialistic than the United States. But that isn't true. It's estimated there are about 2 million actual direct federal employees. There are probably 20 million of these other contractors and state and nonprofit employees and so on. So it actually is going to be tougher than they think to get their arms around what government does in this country, even with uh, you know all of their well-vetted Trumpian officials marching into power, God forbid, in 2025, the U.S. government is a big hydra-headed monster that would be arguably not so easy to control. Your reaction? Well, that's true, although my baseline for these things tends to be kind of reality as it is and the baseline that we're used to. And as Bill, I think, recounted very nicely, the baseline for the second Trump administration should be the first Trump administration, which was really quite a mess because, as Bill sort of uh, laid out, Trump came in, he had no real deep connection to the people who run things in Washington. He didn't really know how the federal government worked. He didn't really have much of a policy mind or agenda of any kind beyond his general populist hand gestures on issues like immigration and foreign policy and trade. I mean, in there, he had kind of these gut-level populist inclinations, but he didn't really get how policy is made in those or any other areas. And so he came in and he had no choice but to staff his administration with Republicans, because that's the way Washington works, that you have people who serve in the administration at any given time, and then they rotate out when that president's party loses control of the White House. And they go either into the private sector or they go work at think tanks and kind of sit around waiting, doing policy work, waiting for their party to win again. And then they rotate back 
into these positions. And there was really nobody there to staff the Trump administration. And because Trump was so offsides with so much of what the Republican Party has stood for, both on the level of like a policy agenda and then temperamentally, he he was frustrated at almost every step. I mean, he did get some things accomplished, but he often would, you know, say, do this. And then people would say, yes, 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 Mr. President. They'd leave and kind of nod to each other like, yeah, let's bury that. And then it wouldn't actually happen. And then he'd forget because he, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. And then, you know, because he has the attention span of a goldfish. Yeah. Yeah. And then he (laughs) spends the afternoon watching Fox News and yelling at the television and on his cell phone, talking to his three best buddies about what's going on on there. And, and so what you ended up with was a very chaotic, very haphazard way of governing where he was stymied often. And thank goodness, in all kinds of ways, that there were people around who was like, yes, Mr. President, I understand you want to put a moat at the border with crocodiles in it, but we can't really do that. Or yes, Mr. President, great idea. We'll do a white paper on that and then hope he'd forget about it. Uh, it, Like That is not what those people want to have happen again. And that's what we're talking about, which is, as uh, to kind of summarize some of the things Bill and and John and you, Mona and Linda, have been talking about, is what we're discussing is the plan for how they're going to change this. And it's going to involve picking up this thread, as people have noted, that has been around since Nixon, certainly since Reagan, the notion that the executive branch has been hobbled. There are things that are kind of post-Watergate reforms, like this whole idea that should the president be allowed to impound funds that are allocated by Congress if the president disagrees with the use of those funds. That was a power uh, that was sometimes exercised by presidents, but in the Nixon administration, Congress rolled it back. You couldn't say, oh, this is fascism. No, it's a return to kind of the pre-Nixon presidency with all the changes that have happened, like, you know, Donald Trump would be the president who actually has this impounding power. But then other things like the Schedule F reform, which is the reform that could potentially allow President Trump to summarily fire tens of thousands of career civil servants across the federal bureaucracy. Again, if the baseline is compared to the first Trump administration, a Trump who could do that and then had a bench of several thousand people waiting to take up those jobs, knowing they would be uh, Trump loyalists who'd been vetted for never having said a single solitary critical thing about Trump or his agenda, they're going to get a a hell of a lot more done than they did the last time. Uh, This is something that should command the attention of every civic-minded American, that the stakes here are enormous, and we are on the cusp of a potential shift of dramatic increase in the power of the presidency at precisely the moment that we would be empowering the most reckless possible person to hold that office. And not only is that bad in and of itself, but how do you think the Democratic Party and Democratic voters are going to respond to that after we saw how many Democrats responded to Trump's hapless, ineffective first presidency? And then how will this newly empowered Trump 
who uh, has much more control at the Pentagon and at other executive branch departments and, and agencies. How will he respond in response to the justifiable outrage of Democrats as they watch this transpire. It's not a pretty scene that we would imagine. I'm sorry that I ended on a kind of a dark note, but you know, that's my brand and uh, <laughs> such is the news cycle this week and maybe maybe this decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I give you the times. Uh, well said. All of you said it extremely well. All right. With that, let us turn to our final segment, our highlight or low light of the week. And we'll start with John Prudeau. Okay. I haven't got any low lights because I figured that the podcast had been doomy enough already. I've, I've got two <laughs> highlights, one which just amused me, which was at the European Union in the European Commission, which is the bureaucracy that tries to run the European Union, there was a post advertised for head competition economist. And this was given to an American citizen who seemed to be the best candidate for the job until France's president, Emmanuel Macron, complained that the job ought to go to a European, you know, in this bureaucracy that is designed to increase the amount of competitiveness in the European Union. And so this poor American economist has now been stood down. And this seems to illustrate some of the problems of, of European governance, um, which, though they are fairly mild compared with what we've been discussing today, are nevertheless real. And then the other one was just that in India, where, as you guys know, Narendra Modi has been prime minister since 2014, and is, you know, is a democracy that in some ways is not uh, as healthy as it might be. 26 opposition parties got together this week to decide to coordinate their opposition to the BJP, the ruling party in India. And, and I think whenever opposition parties get together and sort of make a plan in a state that's threatening to veer towards autocracy, that's a beautiful thing. So two highlights from me, neither of them from America, I'm afraid. Well, thank you for those, though, very much. All right. Uh, Damon Linker. Well, uh, I won't quite give a light and happy uh, <laughs> highlight this week, but it is a highlight because it's a very good piece that readers, I, I think, will enjoy reading, uh, at least as a good piece of reporting. It's by friend of the podcast, Anne Applebaum in The Atlantic, uh, an essay titled, Is Tennessee a Democracy? Subtitled, What Happened When a Republican Supermajority Gained Control and Wasn't Satisfied? It deals with filling in the blanks on something that we might struggle a little bit to understand, those of us who spend so much of our time focused on the national political scene. This is a piece about the state-level Republican Party in Tennessee and how it has changed over the last few years. And there's nothing really directly in it about Trump or DeSantis or the people we normally spend our time talking and writing about having any kind of direct influence on things this is very much grassroots Republican Party and the way that the mindset of the people who, who hold elective office at the local level in a very red state like Tennessee have changed to adopt a kind of paranoia even when they win a majority or even a supermajority power 
they are constantly motivated by a kind of denial that they really have enough power and so they seek ever more because their goals are so far out there that a recalcitrant world where there are, yes, still some Democrats around who, yes, still have some institutional power to try and restrict what the supermajority is doing is so frustrating to them that they lash out at it and then the ratchet moves further to the right. So as a way of trying to understand the kind of sociological dynamic of how that happens and how it is happening at uh, a level below the national political scene that we spend so much time on, I highly recommend the essay to uh, listeners. Thank you. Linda Chavez. Well, listening to Damon, it makes me think that what really is going on in America is there's such a race to become a victim. And even when you win, if you can be a victim, that's the best thing in the world. And I will say that that started on the left, but it has really flourished on the right. I was going to just go with a low light, but John sort of shamed me into coming up with something at the last minute, which is a little bit uplifting. And that is that the Border Patrol released its numbers for June in attempted illegal crossings or border encounters, as they refer to it. And it was good news. There was a 42% decrease from May to June in the number of people trying to come into the United States without documentation. It's down now to under 100,000. It's still a pretty high number, 99,545. But that's the good news. Now for the bad news, Texas, which of course has the longest border with Mexico and many of the people who try to cross over cross from Mexico. The governor there, Governor Greg Abbott, initiated one of these really draconian policies, essentially creating a group of troops who would go down to the border and try to fend off people coming into the United States. And the New York Times this week had an article that was entitled, Texas Harsh New Border Tactics Are Injuring Migrants. And what it depicted, some of it based on firsthand reporting from medics and others who were there at the border and witnessed it with their own eyes, was absolutely unbelievable. These Texas officials were forcing young children back into the Rio Grande River. There's concertina wire all across the border, and now they've put buoys into the river itself covered in concertina wire, and people are being injured, including young children. There were descriptions of people being told not to give water including to, I believe it was a 10-year-old child who had basically fainted because of the extreme heat. It's really quite unbelievable what's being done here. And this at a time when we have less of a problem going on than we did even a month ago. So I think we've focused a lot on Governor DeSantis and his anti-immigrant efforts, but this really goes beyond the pale. These folks who are trying to come in are being dissuaded from being able to claim asylum, even though that is their right, and to be subjected to these kinds of measures where they are being physically injured, some of them, you know, facing possible drowning and other kinds of injuries. It's really wrong. It's immoral. It's disgusting. All right. Thank you. Linda, Bill Galston. I have three offerings for our devoted listeners. A low light, a highlight, and a short but wonderful 
Yes, Mo Udall's story. <laughs> the low light and the highlight involved the same person, Pramila Jayapal, the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives, who a few days ago denounced Israel as a quote-unquote racist state. This caused a great deal of consternation within the Democratic Party, and she realized that she had made a mistake. Whether she thought that it was a political mistake or an actual substantive error, I think is not clear, but she subsequently walked her statement back and indeed ended up voting for a strong pro-Israel resolution, which passed the House of Representatives with only nine dissenting votes. If I recall correctly, all Democrats, AOC, Cori Bush, and people who associate themselves with the far-left opposition in the Democratic Party. So I was glad to see that the co-chair of the Progressive Coalition was opened, if not to reason, at least to political suasion. And I was encouraged that the split within the Democratic Party didn't have more people than it did on the wrong side of the divide. And now for the Mo Udall joke, which I think will be particularly timely as this season of presidential competition heats up. Late in life, long after the wonderful anecdote that Mona recounted, Udall was asked whether there was any cure for presidential ambition. And he reflected for a minute and then said, why, yes, there is. Embalming fluid. (laughs) Good one. Thank you, Bill. (laughs) Oh, we need more Mo Udall types in politics. All right. I, alas, also have a low light, and it is the senator from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville, (laughs) who has been holding up hundreds of nominations for military appointments and or promotions to protest a policy by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to permit members of the military who want to avail themselves of abortions. That is, their travel expenses will be paid by the U.S. military if they travel to a state that permits abortions. Well, Tuberville doesn't like this. And so he is holding up all of these nominations, including that of the Commandant of the Marine Corps. So that's something that hasn't happened in 150 years. So it's bad enough that Tuberville is doing this. It really is endangering our military readiness. But it's incredibly irresponsible that the entire Republican Party has been silent about it. And uh, you hear very little criticism, although I will give Hugh Hewitt a nod because he criticized Tuberville in print about this, and he is not usually one to break ranks, so good for him. But I also think we should be hearing from the Democrats. We should be hearing from Majority Leader Senator Schumer. We should be hearing from Hakeem Jeffries, we should be hearing from Vice President Harris, and yes, we should be hearing from President Biden. They should all be standing up on their hind legs and screaming that this is an absolute outrage. And somebody might just point out to 
Tuberville, ask him how he would feel if a left-wing Democrat were to hold up military nominations, be, you know, until the military agreed to go completely green or or something equivalent. I mean, the fact is, you cannot hold the American military hostage this way, and this deserves a forceful, forceful pushback that, amazingly, it is not getting. All right, with that, I want to thank. John Prudeau for joining us. And I want to thank our regular panel, as well as our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri. And I, of course, want to thank our faithful listeners. And we will return next week as every week. <laughs> <laughs>